I have just launched a mastermind called The Circle of Influence, where I'll be taking you under my wing to show you how to build a platform online that generates an income for you so you can have more freedom in your life. I'm also gonna show you how to become a powerful influencer online so that you can score interviews and so you can get exposure on major publications and platforms. And I'm gonna even show you how to build these platforms yourself, such as a website, a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a social media following so that you can get your message out there to millions. I'm also going to show you how to network with other incredible leaders online so that you can interview them and so that you can collaborate with them and really show you how to refine your story so you can share it in an unforgettable way to score more interviews, to score book deals, and to gain more speaking opportunities so that you can become a powerhouse leader. Now, if this speaks to you, make sure you head over to IamJoelBrown.com slash apply and get in before I close my doors on this live interactive exclusive opportunity where I'm going to go deep with you and with the community of Circle of Influence Game Changers. Don't miss this. Now let's get into this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. I'm your host, Joel Brown, and I'm here today with Eric Edmides. And Eric is the founder of WildFit. He's not just the founder of WildFit. He is an incredible speaker and coach. I had the awesome opportunity to meet Eric out in Sardinia, Italy uh, at A-Fest. And the first session I ever had with Eric, he was teaching us how to powerfully public speak and how to connect with others on a deep and transformational level. And Eric just blew my mind. The way that he shows up is just... uh, (laughs) It's game-changing in the way that he cares so much about your health and what you put in your body and how you do it is just so amazing because I feel like there's so many people out there that are, you know, coming with their opinions. Eric is so science-based and he understands what he's teaching uh, and he has such a passion for it. So I'm so excited for you to learn more about Eric and WildFit and everything that he uh, does in this world that lights him up. So Eric, thank you so much for joining us on the Addicted to Success podcast. Uh, you're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Eric, let's jump straight into it. What fascinates you in the health field? I'm fascinated by so many things in the health field. I'm, I'm fascinated by why people know what to do and then don't do it. I'm, I'm fascinated by why people know what not to do and then they do that. I'm fascinated by that. And I'm fascinated by uh, why governments recommend foods that they know are going to cause healthcare problems long term. I'm fascinated by these things. And, and I have been for over 20 years. It's a, it's a, I, 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 I have to say this in the simplest terms possible. All of this effort people are putting into their success, into their happiness, their, you know, the truth of it is the single best investment anybody ever make in their quality of life and their happiness is to get their relationship with air, water, and food and exercise right. And it's amazing how many things start to go right when you do that. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. So could you break down for us your typical day-by-day habits? Because, you know, with Addicted to Success, in our community, we focus heavily on our habits. You know, I believe that success is a habit. More of what you do is more of who you become. What works well for you? I tend to think of um, habits as automatic behaviors. So, uh, and those things are generally governed by rules. So, you know, for example, here's a habit I have. You wouldn't think of it as a habit, but it's a habit I have. I have a rule that I don't, for example, I don't have dairy products. It's just a thing for me. I just don't do that. So funny, you wouldn't think of that as a habit. You know, most of these people talking about like morning routines and all that kind of stuff. But I think 
partly what we have to understand to get those things right is not only what we do as our habits, but what we also don't do as a lifestyle. So for example, you know, I don't do that. I don't do sugar. I don't, I don't you know, so there's, there's some, something about what we don't do that forms some really important things about our habits as well as what we do do. And then of course, I am not so really ritualistic. In fact, I was uh, listening to Tim Ferriss talk about this the other day, you know, this whole like, you got to have your routine and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm much more around building habits and routines around my specific outcomes for the given week that I'm in. So for example, last week I'm touring around Eastern Europe. I'm, I'm speaking for, you know, whatever, 8,000 people over four days in four countries. I don't really have time for my normal home routine, but there are some very specific things that I need to do to prep for that level of energy for audiences of that size. And so in that case, I have a road routine and it has to do with certain music that I listen to, uh, making sure that I get my workout in, making sure that I'm drinking a lot of water because when you're speaking, you use so much water. So building routines around creating that peak performance. And yet when I get home, I'll have a very different attitude toward that stuff. I'm home with my family and now my habits are much more family oriented. Like one of my favorite things in the world is when my little girl like creaks the bedroom door open at about five o'clock in the morning and crawls into bed. Now, again, that's not my habit. It's hers, but my habit is to enjoy it a lot. Whereas I can tell you that even 10 years ago, if somebody had woken me up at five every morning, I would have been pretty resentful. Now it's just joyful. <laughs> I feel you on that. That's awesome. So, can you break it down for us on a psychological level when someone is faced with, let's say, a dairy product or alcohol? And they're like, they, they said to themselves, my rule is I won't drink alcohol or I won't have dairy products, but, but at some point they cave. What happens to somebody on a psychological level? Because I, I have heard you break it down before and I love the way that you teach this. There, there are a number of different things that drive us to eat or drink something. And, um, and, and frankly, our nutritional sustenance is way down the list. Like the fact is most of what we eat isn't really about our health or survival. It's about making us feel differently than we did in the moment before. And so when we um, use willpower to not eat something, that willpower is going to cave eventually. Willpower does work, but it is a short-term thing. It's kind of like, I don't know. You know how you have some muscles when you're working out? There's some muscles where you can keep pushing them and keep pushing them, but there's some muscles that you, like calf muscles are like that. You know, you're doing calf raises. Eventually the calves just go, nope, nope. <laughs> yeah, I don't have another raise in there. And, and I think willpower is like that, where you've got these moments where, you know, yeah, you can hold on, but that willpower is like that muscle that's constantly being flexed. And at some point that it's going to snap and it's going to let go. And so what I'm about is helping people move past that willpower. So as you said, break down the psychology of it. Well, I'll give you a really good example. One of my clients uh, came to me and said, wow, I'm doing so well. I've lost all this weight. She was, uh, I remember she was saying that it was the first time she felt like she could go to the beach in a two-piece you know, swimsuit and feel good about herself for years. And she was still having a problem with one food. And I said, what is it? And she goes, well, icing. I got, I've got this, I just can't, can't say no to icing. And, and, and she says, and lately it's been getting worse. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, what, tell me about your relationship with icing. And so now what I want to do is try to figure out what it is that she thinks icing is going to give her. Well, I, I naturally jumped to the conclusion that like so many other children, her, she was in the kitchen when her mother was baking and her mother let her lick the icing bowl out or something. And she's really just eating a bunch of nostalgia. But I said to her, well, did your mom bake, home bake, you know, like cook in the house and make you make homemade icing? Nope. What, 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 how was icing done in your house? She goes, oh, my mom just bought the canned stuff. And I'm like, 
Uh-huh. Tell me about that. She goes, well, my mom would put the can in the can opener. I'd hear it. I'd hear it. And I'd come running down the stairs and I'd come sneaking in through the door, come under the counter, grab a spoon. And when she wasn't looking, I'd reach up and I'd scoop some out and eat it right out of the can. And she'd usually let me get away with about two of those before she'd stop me. And then I said, and you guys would have a big laugh and a connection, right? And she goes, yeah. And I said, so you were feeling a lot of love in those moments, right? Yeah. How's your relationship with your mother today? And she just started crying because her mother was in early stage dementia and her mother was slipping away. And that's why her craving for icing was getting stronger because wow. icing was one of the mechanisms for connecting with that motherly love. And the joke of it is, in this case, it was one of those things. Once you shine the bright light on it, it goes away. It was once she saw it as clearly as that, it went away. And now she didn't have to use willpower to not eat the icing. What she was able to do is associate with her true reason for eating it. And then she was also able to associate to something we call the food timeline, which is where you really pay attention to your emotional state in the period of time before you're going to eat, when you make the decision to eat, when you put the first bite in your mouth, when you put the second and third and fourth bite in your mouth, and then when you finish it, and then how you feel half an hour later or the next morning. And you know the kicker is, if you eat a bunch of icing, here's how that works. You're in a low state. You decide to eat some icing. You immediately improve your emotional condition even before you've eaten the icing because the minute you give yourself permission, you start producing serotonin, so you start feeling good. Now, while feeling good, you eat the icing. In a Pavlovian sense, you link up the feeling good to the icing. You think it was the icing that made you feel good. It never was. It was the permission. And then you eat the first taste, and the first taste is very good because you haven't had anything sweet all day or whatever. But then the second mouthful and the third mouthful, they just don't have the same zest. And frankly, often we just finish the thing because, well, we've been taught not to waste food. And then half an hour later, you're yawning and tired. And maybe the next morning you wake up with just a tinge of a headache and you need a coffee to start your day. When you begin to see the entire timeline as one event, Rather than the way most people see it is, they see it as, well, I was feeling low, and then I ate the icing, and then I felt better. It's like three events. No, it's one event, and the end of the event is feeling like crap. And when you get really associated to that, all of a sudden, you don't need willpower anymore. Oh, yeah. You know, this is really interesting, Eric, because I feel like there are times in my life where I knew I wanted to improve in a certain area and it seriously came down to just making the decision. It's like, you know what? I'm going to make a decision no matter what. Yeah. And it was not just a line in the sand. It was a line in the cement. Like, this is it. I know I need this. And, and usually my process is to sit down and to write out as many benefits that, that I can that align with that new decision to the point where I shadow all the other justifications as to why I've, you know, why I need to stay in this. Now I've moved my mind to a new space and gone, this just outweighs it. Do you have a process like that? Well, we, we have a number of them. And, and what I would suggest to you is this is a really good, you know, space to talk about the difference between power and force. What, what, what's going on for a lot of people is, you know, December 31st comes along and they look down at their belly or they, the way they feel. And they're like, I got to make some changes. I got to drink less. I got to eat less. I got to work out more or whatever. And very often they'll do along the lines you're describing. They'll come up with a lot of leverage, right? Like I got to do it for all these reasons. But as long as they're still having to force the behavior, let me put it in more gentle terms. If you want to eat something, you're going to eat it. You are. 
If you want to eat it, you're going to eat it. Sure, you might decide not to for a period of time, but then you're going to have a really good day at work and you're going to want to celebrate. You're going to eat it. Or you're going to have a really bad day at work and you're going to need to commiserate and you're going to eat it. Or something really terrible is going to happen in your life and you're feeling empty and then you're, you know, some trigger is going to come along. And, and so as long as you still regarded it as food, as long as you still wanted it, you will one day cave to the want. And so what I believe we have to do is work to eliminate the want entirely to get to the place. Like I'll give you, this is such a neat version of this, that I was sitting having a discussion one evening in Jamaica with the president of WildFit, Andrea, and one of the founders of Zumba and the chief marketing officer of Zumba. And, you know, he was talking about marketing frequencies, brand frequencies. And he said, well, what do you think the pervasive message or frequency of WildFit is? And we sat and talked about it. And in the end, I think we arrived at the place where ultimately it's about freedom. Freedom from eating certain things and freedom to eat certain things. You know, freedom. And so we had that conversation. And then the next morning, we're in the buffet at the hotel. We're having a meal. And a guy walks out of the buffet area and he spots me. And he walks up and he goes, Eric, he goes, you're, you're Eric from Wildfit. And I go, yes, I, yes, I am. And he goes, I just, I can't believe I, I saw, I, I just want to thank you. And I'm like, okay, what, what, what for? And he says, I want to thank you for my freedom. And the three of us all looked at each other like, who set this up, right? Like, no way is this happening after we just had this meeting. You know, it's like, it's a yeah. setup. You know, who paid him? What's going on? No, Jeffrey suddenly turns to him. Jeffrey from Zoom turns to him and he goes, wait, what does freedom mean to you? And he says, oh. It means I just walked through the buffet and I didn't even notice that they had donuts and muffins and cookies. And I came out the other side and I thought, that's weird. A hotel like this usually has that stuff and I didn't even see it. So I turned back around and looked inside and there they were. But I hadn't even seen them. They weren't calling to me. I don't want them. I'm not interested. I'm free. That's wow. the goal. So his, you know, the RAS, the reticular activating system was no longer looking for this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He got to the point where he didn't want it anymore. And that's why I'm saying like, again, similar conversation. I had this guy walk up to me in Scandinavia one day. He says, he goes, I've heard really good things about your WildFit program. I've seen people's before, after transformations, even my friends. He goes, but I can't do it. I'm like, why not? And he goes, because I, I, I value my freedom too much. And I said, okay, what does that mean to you? And he goes, well, I just feel free right now. And I said, okay, well, well, hold on. What does that really mean? And he goes, well, it means that I can eat what I want, when I want, as much as I want, any time that I want. Fair enough. That's a good mm -hmm. definition for freedom, I'd say. I said, but are you free to not eat what you don't want to eat when you wish you wouldn't eat it? And he goes, <laughs> huh? What? And I said, well, hold on a minute. You said that you want to be free to eat whatever you want as much as you want whenever you want, right? But are you free to not eat what you wish you wouldn't eat from time to time when you wish you wouldn't eat it? And he goes, I don't know if I understand. I said, all right, you like pizza, right? He goes, yeah, I, I have to eat pizza. And I said, well, we just had lunch. So if I brought a pizza over here, would you eat it? And he goes, yeah. And I go, but we just had lunch. You're full. And he goes, yeah, but it's pizza. I said, so you're not free of pizza, are you? And he goes, no, I have to eat it. And I said, are there other foods that you're not free of? And he goes, yeah, ice cream, cookies. And I said, wouldn't you like to be free of them? And he goes, yes, okay, I'll do the program. <laughs> By the way, he lost something like 45 kilograms and completely transformed his life with freedom. Oh, that's incredible. 
Well, I love that. I love that. That's like a, a perception shift. You're, you're challenging his way of thinking in order for him to realize like, wait a minute, I'm making an excuse here. Yeah. Is this possible? And you know, and mostly we are. That's the truth. Yeah. Mostly we are. You know, we've been taught this food equals love and this food equals connection and this food equals Christmas and this food equals Easter. And we've been conditioned to do those things because smart marketers know that if they can install a rule in our buying patterns, that we won't think anymore. So there are people who eat chocolate at Easter and they eat it without even thinking about it, even though they might not eat it the rest of the year because, well, you're supposed to. You know, and that's, I think that's some of the conditioning that we have to break for people so that they can be free. I'm not saying they shouldn't eat it. I'm saying they should eat it when they want to eat it. They should eat as much as they want to eat and not more. And they should stop when they want to stop. They should be free. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, look, it, it sounds like people are going for that emotion, not knowing that they can create that in other ways within themselves. Yeah. yeah that's one of the really powerful exercises we can do with clients is we take a look at, we identify a triggering emotion. And, and, and then we brainstorm with them uh, a, a number of um, other ways that they can deal with that emotion. So we help them brainstorm other strategies. I'll give you a crazy, you know, silly, simple example. But a lot of times, particularly for women, chocolate is a really like, great substance for loneliness. Like, so if, I, if a woman is, and I, I'm sure men do this too. I just hear it mostly from women, that if they're feeling like a little lonely or disconnected, that there's nothing that'll help them feel better you know, then chocolate will. It's like, that really works, right? And I go, well, hold on. Does it? Does it really work? Like, because you eat it and while you're eating it, you forget your loneliness. But how do you feel half an hour later? How do you feel an hour later? And you go, oh, then you have the sugar crash. Now you're alone and low energy. And they're like, yeah, that's really true, isn't it? And so what's really interesting is what if when they felt that loneliness, they picked up the phone and called somebody? You know, what, what, what if they, what if they, what if they went for a walk outside, called a friend? You know what, you know what I'm saying? Like get, get connected and solve the emotion in a functional way instead of a dysfunctional way. Change your life. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I think uh, is, is an important conversation is this conversation around alcohol, right? Because it's been injected into our culture as like, you know, oh, it's good, sit back and have a beer or... And I get like everything in balance. I know that uh, you and I were at a party. We're in Bali. We're here in Bali, Indonesia. Yeah. And uh, I, drinks will come around and I asked, you're not drinking? He said, no, I haven't. I don't drink. I don't drink alcohol. <laughs> How did you break through this? Because I know at some point you would have you know, had alcohol. Uh, and I'm sure you have a lot of people that come to you. Because I know that for me, if I do start to get into this pattern of having probably more drinks than I should, I notice that it affects my creativity. It affects my sleep. It feels like I'm getting this, you know, amazing experience on the front end, but on the back end, I've taken the loan out and I need to pay for it. So yeah. You, you know, um, I, I had a, first of all, I have no judgment about alcohol. My, my wife drinks from time to time. She'll have a glass of champagne here or there three, four times a year. And I don't, I'm not anti-alcohol. I, I just, um, in my life, what happened was my father uh, was struggling with alcoholism through most of my childhood. My brother became an alcoholic. Um, I think he was, he was like, he had quit drinking before he was legally allowed to drink. He was going to, I mean, he was going to kill himself. And so I, I watched all that stuff happening around me and I didn't have a particularly unhealthy relationship with alcohol. I only got drunk some, a few times in my life. But this one night I got drunk 
and I, and I didn't like my behavior in the morning and I was sick, you know, vomiting. And, and I remember I just, I just made this deal with God, you know, like, it's like, help me out here. If you just help me to feel a little better, I'll never drink again. And I know a lot of people say that. I know a lot of people say it, but you know, I kept the promise and I didn't, I didn't actually mean for it to be like permanent. I just made the deal with myself that I wouldn't drink for like six months. And then by the end of six months, I just had no interest in it anymore. Now, I'll give you one clue about this in my opinion. And you already, you already dropped a big clue. And that is that alcohol is very often like, like any, you know, alcohol oddly is a stimulant and a depressant, but like any of those things, it is a loan. So it's giving you something right now that you'll have to pay back later. And you'll have to pay it back with interest in many cases. And the longer you use it, it's like loan sharking interest. It gets worse and worse. So Ultimately, one of the reasons people like alcohol so much is that as they were growing up, they were conditioned not to be themselves. So, you know, if you, if you watch kids, when a kid has a temper tantrum, it's like, nah, you know, freaking out and vocalizing. You know, nobody was born afraid of public speaking. Every kid's a good public speaker. If you've ever been on a plane with a two-year-old, you know this to be true, right? Like, <laughs> we're all totally happy to be ourselves, right? But but then we, we start to grow up and somebody tells us about using indoor voices or think before you speak or whatever. And we start to become who society wants us to become. And what alcohol does is it gives us permission to break out of that for the evening, to be a little louder, a little funnier, a little more verbose. But the problem is, is that there's a threshold, right? And I look, silly joke, but I heard this comedian once. He says, he says to his friend, how come you enjoy drinking so much? And he goes, well, you know, going out for a couple of nice drinks enhances and magnifies my personality. And he goes, yeah, but w what if you're an asshole? You know, like, uh, and, <laughs> and unfortunately, I've seen quite a lot of that, you know. And so, my, my feeling is one of the ways that we can adjust our relationship with alcohol is to really get to know ourselves first and give ourselves permission to go out to a party and cut loose and have fun and do all that stuff without needing the alcohol to depress our inhibitions and stimulate our actions. And, and I think that, that I'm really like, I'm glad that I stopped drinking so young because I was forced to learn that stuff. A buddy of mine quit 10 years after me. I went out dancing with him and a bunch of friends one day and the guy was a stiff shirt. Like he had no, you know, cause alcohol was his shortcut for personality. And so I, I, I think one of the ways that we can adjust our relationship with alcohol a great deal is by working on self-identity and personality. And there's another thing. And when we created WildFit, we, we knew it was about nutrition, right? But what has blown me away is the number of people who have written to us after doing the program telling us that they have completely changed their relationship with alcohol and even stopped it completely when they were an alcoholic. It's not designed for sobriety, but what's really fascinating we found is that it is a lot easier to break addictions when you are well hydrated and well nourished, when you, when you are eating really well, those addictions have less hold on you. Yeah, I believe that. And, and one of the things I noticed even within myself was when I started to get on top of my vitamins, my minerals, uh, I started to pick up a new gym routine and challenge myself and I started to notice growth. It's almost like this thought of if I go and drink tonight, I'm going to undo the good work I've been doing all week. Like yeah. That's, that's a, kind of the story that started to play in my head, which actually supported me in not drinking as much as I used to. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I think the other thing to think about with alcohol is like, you know, 
if, if a client of mine were to come to me and say, well, Eric, I'm going to drink and I want to drink six glasses of wine a week. Should I drink one a day for six days of the week or should I drink six glasses of wine on a Saturday night? I'd be like, drink six glasses of wine on a Saturday night. Just go do it and then give your body a week to recover. But you see, what, mo- what a lot of people are doing is they're going, well, I don't drink that often. I mean, I don't drink that much. I just have one glass of, I just have one glass of night, uh, wine every night before I go to bed. Really? Because I'm going to think that doing that to the body every single day is worse than doing a larger amount once in the week when your liver has a chance to recover and you have a chance to cleanse and a chance to sleep properly all week long. And so I'm not, like I said, I'm not against alcohol. I'm just thinking it should be an occasion thing. And the minute, and and frankly, look, the minute anything is like daily and hard to give up, you got to question that relationship. You have all these people like weighing up like how they should drink. And and I'm really of the opinion that it's not about the overall quantity. It's about the frequency and regularity. So I would rather have a client that drinks, you know, on a Saturday night and has as much as they want rather than somebody who drinks a little single bit every day. Because every, if you drink one glass of wine every night, that has an impact on your sleep and it has an impact on your liver and it doesn't give your body a break. Whereas if you just drink once a week and now your body has a chance to cleanse, it has a chance to recover, you're sleeping well the rest of the week, hey, I'm all for going out and having a good time. I'm just thinking once something gets to the point where it's like daily and tough to give up, you got to question that relationship. Yeah, for sure. You often work with people when it comes to uh, breaking through their limiting beliefs. I know a lot of people that, that come to your events, they, they have this like, you know, fear of rejection and, you know, I'm not good enough. And I know that this also can play into, uh, they medicate themselves with food in the yeah. process, right? Yeah. Uh, how do we interrupt this story or this pattern of, of like people copping out on themselves because they're scared, you know, with this whole I'm, I'm not good enough conversation? What's your process there? I, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, um, there's a process that we take our clients through. Uh, it's, we do it at our um, retreats and, and we're doing it at the upcoming um, Quantum Shift program. But it's, it's really uh, a step-by-step strategy for building self-esteem. And, you know, the trouble is, is that most of us have externalized. We've outsourced our sense of self-esteem. In other words, it's what people comment. Did we get enough likes? How did people give feedback on whatever we're doing? Like, we outsource our self-esteem. And, and the truth is that really, the simplest way to build self-esteem is to do what you wish you would do. It's to do what you want you to be doing. And so, you know, what we do is we construct a list of things that we know to be self-esteem boosting and things that we know to be self-esteem destroying. So, for example, if you want to go to the gym tomorrow, and you go to the gym, your self-esteem takes a little bit of an uptick. It's like, yeah, see, I followed through. But if you talk yourself out of going to the gym, then your self-esteem is going to slide just a little bit. And so one of the things that we start to look at is the decisions that we make on a daily basis that have an impact on our sense of self-worth. And and so rather than trying to do some big quick fix and, you know, like I'm going to suddenly, you know, I, I uh, look, we can go and we can go to some big seminar, or, you know, we can go out and learn mantras or go on some retreat. And it's like, I am worthy. I am worthy. I am worthy. And it's like, okay, I'm fixed, right? I'm like, well, why don't you do this? 
How about you set a goal to floss twice a day, every day for a week when you haven't been flossing enough? Because you know what's crazy? After a week of flossing every day, you're going to feel a little better about yourself. Uh, how about this? You just want to start off gently going for a walk every day. So how about you just commit to five minutes a day of going for a walk? And you know what's crazy? After about 10 days of going for a five-minute walk every single day, you're guess, you, know, you know what's going to happen? You feel a little better about yourself. And so by completing on these very small things, it's very much like um, – you know, I think uh, uh, the, the idea of like um, building self-esteem through your own behavior and insourcing how you feel about yourself. It's not about what other people think. It's about what you think of you. And what you think of you is entirely based on whether or not you're behaving in accordance with your sense of identity. And so if you're like, wow, I really wish I wouldn't eat all this chocolate cake and you go eat the chocolate cake, then guess what? You feel a little worse about yourself. And so that's really, I think, a key principle that we can use in moving to a place where we're not now having to use something like alcohol to overcome a sense of lack of self-worth because guess what? We already feel good. Yeah, I, I love this. Uh, you commented on one of the videos I put up yesterday about identity, you know, changing your identity by stepping out of your comfort zone. And uh, I also had James Clear, who's the author of Atomic Habits uh, on yeah. the podcast. And uh, I think you, you and uh, him would definitely vibe. I know that your work uh, definitely aligns with each other. Uh, but James uh, talked a lot about this whole identity shift and uh, we can recreate amazing habits for identity shifts. And one of the things was that when you wake up every morning and you make your bed, it's just like a little habit, right? But yeah. it, you're teaching and showing yourself in reality that you are a man or a woman of your word, that you're disciplined. So the story now becomes I'm disciplined and it starts to leak into other areas of your life yeah you know, going to the gym and, and not eating that cake on the counter when you've already had too much sugar for the week you know yeah it's very much like that and it is the little things that can have such a big impact on that for sure and and that is kind of the 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 exercises working on the identity you know joel like here's the deal i am I'm, I'm i'm fit i'm healthy you know i'm doing okay uh last year i went out to go visit with the hadza bushmen in east africa they wanted me to go hunting with them I carried a tracker with me so I'd have a sense of the distance. We did 27 miles that day. And the next day we did another 17 miles. I'm not 23 anymore. I did not train for this marathon experience. I just did it. I'm in good shape. But you know what was really crazy is I started feeling like, you know, I don't feel a shirt the way I'd like to or, you know, my midsection, like even though I'm in good cardio shape and, I'm, and I can run, you know, and I can do all this stuff, I was like, but you know what I noticed about myself is an identity. And my identity was that I don't like working out. I had this identity. I don't like working out. And, and I was like, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? Where did I get that identity from, I thought. And so I thought, all right, well, you know what? I want to I fig figure this out. And so I found a personal trainer that I really liked and had a lot of rapport with. I went to him, talked to him about what my, ultimately my goals were. And I told him that I felt like one of the reasons I'd never figured out the identity piece before was that, frankly, you got to probably, I mean, you know, I guess as you get older, it's not, your body's not quite so responsive, but I feel like you got to work out for a good six, eight weeks before you actually start seeing things changing on your body. That's a long time to go without progress, right? Without feeling a real sense yeah. of progress. And so I went to him and I said, this is a problem for me. Like I, I really, and he's like, well, hold on. I think we can do this. And I think we can do that. And he was a, he was a, um, a, a, a professional competitive level bodybuilder. So he's a sculptor, not just a personal trainer. So he said, if you commit to this with me, we'll make it happen. And I worked out like five days a week for the next six weeks with him. And all of a sudden I, I, my 
t-shirts where the seam used to be, the shoulder was on this side. It was like, oh, now my shoulder comes out past the seam. And I saw it in the measurements. And then the progress was motivating. And then that made me want to do it even more. And I, I, I got to tell you, the transformation in my life is whole, wholesale. Now, even when I, I have an injury in my shoulder at the moment, I have to fight with myself not to work out to let my shoulder heal because my identity <laughs> has changed to I absolutely am, the, I am absolutely somebody who works out. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with, with us. That's such a great example. Yeah. I, I, uh, I had somebody recently that I was coaching and uh, they came from one of the, our events that we held out here in Bali and uh, we had like a group call and there was 30 of them on the call and they all talked about how amazing they were. It felt after the event and these things that they've changed in their life. And one of them was feeling a little bit down on herself. And I asked her, what, what's your experience? And she's, she said, well, I kind of feel like crap. You know, I'm listening to all these people that say that, that, you know, they've experienced this and experienced that. And, and I said, so you're in comparison right now. She's like, yeah, I am. And I said, what are you comparing to? She's like, oh, they've, they've experienced this and that. And I said, but how do we measure transformation? Right. How do we do that? How do you know that somebody's like, let's say raise their level of consciousness or, uh, cause there's so many factors that are brought into account and it, it, there is no measuring system for it. The thing that I do like about, uh, you know, going to the gym is physically, you can actually see it. And I think that that's what we as humans constantly are looking for is how do we, you know, measure it through the, the, the eye, right? How do we see it ourselves first to believe that it's possible rather than actually yeah. feeling into it more in ourselves and going, wait a minute, I feel a little bit better today. I'm not thinking as many negative thoughts about myself. That's a shift. Even yeah. if it's a 1%, it's a shift. Yeah, very true. Mm. It is. And you know, when, when you, that's a really important distinction about how big a change you have to make. You know, the reason that our program is called Quantum Shift, it's really simple. I'm sick and tired of all these people with their programs. We're going to help. We're going to help you make a quantum change in your life, a quantum leap. And I'm like, dude, quantum isn't big. It's small. Quantum is super small. In fact, a quantum is the smallest version of a thing that is still that thing that if you broke it down every smaller, it wouldn't even be that thing anymore. So like, you know, a quantum is very small and real significant personal transformation exists at the quantum level at the quantums of human behavior, values, beliefs, automatic behaviors, and rituals, uh, uh, self-esteem. These are quantums. And it, when we change those things, we change everything. Maybe if we change those things on Monday, we maybe don't change a lot by on Tuesday, but I'm telling you what, by Friday, we're a different person because there's the, 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 first of all, there's the compounded effect of making one quantum change in one area of life over time, but then there's the quantum impact of making many quantum changes or the compounded impact of making many compounded, uh, many quantum changes like together. And, and it's so much more effective than this old school method of we're just going to change everything overnight. It's, you know, we can do some stuff like that. There's no question. But when we're talking about creating a really masterfully lived, extraordinary quality of life, I think we have to be looking at exactly that type of stuff like you described. It's got to be about how you feel about yourself. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a good uh, goal to set. I've, I've started to put that into my vision process of how you, what's your goal around how you're looking at feeling this year? Like, what are you focused on? What are you bringing into your life in order to increase that feeling? Yeah. Important stuff. Now, when it comes to the field of health, what do you 
most excited about and looking forward to as you see as we start to advance in this space? You know, um, the largest dairy producer in America filed bankruptcy today, or one of them uh, filed bankruptcy today. And, um, and there's a part of me that goes out to the owners of that business and, you know, my heart goes out to them and the employees of that business. And, and uh, you know, because I feel for that. I understand what that process is like and I, I, and, I, and I feel for all those people. And I also see something else happening and that is that the dairy industry has been in steady decline. Um, as people have begun to realize that we were sold a bill of goods about their essential, you know, about how important they were to us and this kind of thing. And what, what that's beginning to indicate is, is that if we really want to change the diet industry, if we really want to change the food industry, if we really want to change the pharmaceutical industry, the best way for us to do that is not necessarily to go work with the government and try to change regulations because we can't compete with their money. But what we can do is work directly with the consumers and get them to change their buying patterns. And in doing so, we can force the manufacturers to change. And, and we're already seeing that at a big level where, you know, they, they, in, in the news report that I saw about, the, about this dairy producer going under, the very first sentence in it was, as demand for milk has been going down because of plant-based milk alternatives coming up, it's become more and more difficult to be in that business. In other words, the consumers are voting with their money and it's having an impact on food production. That's what needs to happen now. And, and on a smaller level, I had one of my clients call me and say that their local butcher, they used to order sausages, you know, like they were, it was grass raised um, meat and, and a very, you know, uh, the, the butcher worked only with really like um, heart centered ethical farmers. And, and so, but the problem was they would always put syrup or honey or something in the, in the sausage. So she would always call and say, well, I actually don't want that. I just, I don't want all, the, I don't want the sugar in there. And, and, uh, and then after a couple of months, she, she, she called up to put her order in and the butcher said, we don't, we don't, you don't need to put your special order in anymore. She said, why not? She goes, well, we don't, we don't add syrup and stuff to any of the sausages anymore. Why not? Well, because there was you and then we got this other wild fit client. They started asking for their sausages without sugar in them. And we started wondering, why are we putting sugar in them? So then we tried some of the custom ones we were making for you. And we found out that they were bloody delicious. And so we've removed <laughs> sugar from all of our sausages. And so, you know, at a, at a, at a huge level, the largest, one of the largest dairy producers in America just went bankrupt. And at a small level, this butcher down the street has decided to stop putting sugar where it's not necessary. What I'm excited about is stimulating the food revolution and stimulating different buying patterns so that we can do things like reverse type 2 diabetes, so that we can reduce the number of cancer uh, cases that are happening around the world, so that people can be in less pain from inflammation and infection and autoimmune disease, so that people can fundamentally be happier without having to take drugs to get there. Yeah. So apart from the ethical standpoint with the dairy industry, what, what is the main reason as to why you don't have dairy? Well, all right. I mean, you've said apart from the ethical reason, I, I just want to touch on that really briefly. And that is to say that I, I can't imagine a, le a, a, a less ethical um, treatment of animals. I mean, look, if you think about it, Joel, honestly, if I offered you, let's say you had to reincarnate in your next life and I go, well, you can choose. There's this beautiful family owned heart centered farm over here and you have a choice. You're going to be on that farm in your next life, but you have a choice between being a dairy cow and a beef cow. Which would you choose? Yeah, right. I mean, I'm telling you what, you would take beef cow all day long. 
because you're going to go live out in the pasture, you're going to eat grass, and one day they're going to come along and slaughter you and harvest you. But if you're a dairy cow, they're going to artificially inseminate you with a machine, or maybe if you're really lucky with a bull. And then after that, they're going to take your baby away from you and keep you lactating for the rest of your life in some kind of abject torture and slavery. So the dairy industry is unconscionably unethical in my opinion. But, you know, uh, there's another side, and that is that, you know, there's nothing redeeming about dairy products from a human consumption perspective. They're not good for us. They cause all kinds of issues for us. If, you, if anybody's dealing with respiratory infections, ear infections, nose infections, sinus infections, cut dairy products out and a huge number of those cases simply clear up. Acne, cut out milk, it goes away, most cases. Uh, and, and, and then there's the longer term impact that if you're you know, artificially sticking all this this calcium that isn't even bioavailable to you, like it's undigestible calcium because it's in the form of a bovine secretion that we've never evolved the ability to process. Apparently, one glass of milk a day or even an artificial calcium supplement at that level increases your chances of developing prostate or ovarian cancer by something like 200%. So there's no good reason for drinking milk. Not even adult cows drink milk. In fact, we as humans eventually grow teeth. We stop producing lactase because we no longer need to break down the milk sugars because milk was designed perfectly for us to grow, th to grow through a very specific stage of life. In fact, Joel, I don't know if you know this, but not only is milk designed for that particular stage of life, but your mother made different milk for you in week one of your life than she did in week two. Oh, wow. And she made different milk again in week three and then different milk again in week four. She was altering, of course, unconsciously, the formulation of your milk for the perfect state of your being in that moment, the development of your immune system, the building of your bones, the building of your body. She was developing the perfect version of it. Now, I got to ask you the next time you want to suck back a glass of milk, what stage of development was the baby cow at? You know, like, oh, you're, you're, it's just not right, in my opinion. There's a bunch of other reasons. Again, we can go to one that crosses both the personal and the ethical, but that is that in America, and by the way, just because it's in America doesn't mean it's not happening in Australia. It doesn't mean it's not happening in the United Kingdom. I just happen to have the statistic for America. One in five cows in the United States is suffering with antibiotic-resistant mastitis. In other words, a painful boob infection. And then we still plug them into the machine, even though it's unbelievably painful for them, and then you end up with milk that is tainted by the infected fluids from the mastitis infection. And this became so prolific that the dairy industry had to go to the, to the, to the uh, FDA and apply for an increased pus supply. Like, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of pus that can be in the milk before it's considered not safe. We need to improve that. We need to increase that because we just can't control the supply anymore. So now you're dealing with a majorly unethical problem, and that is milking cows while it's painful. And secondly, giving this to people to drink. I'm not a fan. Yeah, you, you sold it to me for sure. I remember when I was a little kid, I, was, uh, I had a cup of milk in my hand, and my granddad would have, and he had rice milk and maybe some other types of milk that was non-dairy. And uh, he asked me, he's like, have you got... Uh, your floppy ears? I said, no. He goes, do you have a tail? I said, no. And he goes, why are you drinking milk then? <laughs> do you have four stomachs? <laughs> right. So, yeah, it gets you thinking. It does for sure. And um, I, I do like that you, you know, broke down like 
what happens in the in the body as well. I heard you talking a little bit more about that. And my goal this year is to bring my body into a very like well balanced alkaline state because I know like coffees, alcohol, dairy, all these things are brings your body into inflammation, right? One of the principles of WildFit that that we really get into in in more you know um, deep terms when we're coaching clients is yeah. that the body is. Um, Okay, let's, let's touch on something. Earlier, you said something about balance and moderation. So one of the expressions of WildFit is that everything in moderation includes your health. So the minute somebody chooses to live with everything in moderation, well, what they're choosing is to live with moderate health. And that's because we're not designed for everything in moderation. We're actually, we're actually designed a little bit differently. For example, one of the things that we're designed for is seasonal rotation of foods. Our ancestors lived with seasonal changes. In other words, there was no plant that was available every day all year long. And, and, and the idea of a recommended daily allowance is, is a farcical idea. I mean, the, you, you couldn't go out into nature and hunt and gather all the foods necessary to achieve the RDA of America. It, it's just not possible. We're not meant to have an RDA. We're meant to have a recommended annual allowance. Yeah, there are some things we need daily. We need water daily. You know, we need air daily. But beyond that, there's nothing you need daily, right? You know, when you, when you eat something like, um, you know, you go out and have a, a, a nice, big, free-range organic steak, assuming you're not a vegan, then your body gets a bunch of fats and, and complex amino acid chains, proteins, what have you. It gets B12. But it holds on to that stuff for weeks. So it's not like you have to go do it again the very next day. And, and I think that's something that, that people don't often understand is that we, like, here, here's an example, Joel, is that your pancreas is a dual, you know, it's a dual function organ. It has the capacity to produce insulin when you eat carbs, and it has to produce the capacity to produce glucagon when you're not eating carbs. Well, most people eat carbs every single day, and as a consequence, their pancreas is constantly producing insulin and never producing glucagon, so it's out of balance. And it needs, the, the body needs to go through that cyclical change. But you know what's just as bad as eating sugar every day, in my opinion, is going keto as a lifestyle. Keto is an incredibly valuable and powerful place to take your body from time to time. But it's not a lifestyle any more than eating carbs every single day is a lifestyle. I've been out hunting and gathering at the bush. And let me tell you right now, when fruit's in season, they eat it. They're not keto that day. When they yeah. find a beehive, they crack that baby open and they pull the honey out by the handful and eat the sugar. They're not keto that day. We're meant to have cycles. Yeah, powerful points. Have you seen the documentary Game Changers? I haven't seen it yet. I've seen bits of it and I've seen some of the claims that are made out of it and I'm going to do a breakdown of it. Although I got to tell you, I think it was, uh, um, oh, I can't think who, Rob Wolf or Chris Kessler, one of them has already done an incredible breakdown of it. It's like any of these other movies that are effectively politicized uh, vegan propaganda. Uh, like one of the claims in the movie, you know, said that 94% of early death can be linked to meat eating. You know, well, Joel, let me tell you right now, nine, 100% of early death can be, can be linked to breathing. <laughs> No, they, sure. they take these statistics and use them to make a manipulative point for a political agenda. Here's another example. I don't think this is in Game Changers, but it is in another one where they're talking about all the fires that are burning, you know, that, are, that have been burning in the Amazon and how it's the beef industry that's doing that. And you know what? Yes, the beef industry is contributing to that. 
But do you know that something like one third of the deforestation of Mexico is for avocado plantations? The vegans are doing it. But you know, you don't hear that version of the story in their pro-vegan movie. And I'm not really interested in that. I was a vegan for many, many years. And, uh, and it was only through research and, and, and letting go of my ego and, my des- and, and, and really tuning in my desire to actually like find out the truth that one day I had to wake up to the reality of that and move in a slightly different direction. Yeah, very interesting stuff. You know, I was a vegetarian for 24 years from seven years old. And I recently in the last two years ago, I'm pescatarian. Yeah. And I can tell within me, I feel like my energy levels are a lot better. Yeah. And I didn't know that. But the thing is, I've got a contrast now because for 24 years, I wasn't having it. And then when I started to, I'm like, oh, wow, something's different. Yeah. What happened to me is I was like, I want to say, I don't know exactly how long, four or five years vegan and and vegetarian for buffers on either side of that. But um, what happened in my case is I was training for the London Marathon while doing research in this space of nutritional anthropology. And um, one of the things that the vegan movement used to say, of course, they can't get away with it now because people know, but they used to say that humans are the only great apes that eat meat and the rest of them are all vegetarians, like gorillas. Gorillas are actually vegetarians, but, or herbivores is the correct terminology. But, but you know what? Chimpanzees are not. They are unbelievably effective hunters. Their favorite thing to hunt is colobus monkeys, and they're really good at it. Bonobos hunt. They eat meat. Our closest primate relatives are meat eaters. And I was discovering all this to my horror because I'd been one of the people talking about, oh, our teeth aren't shaped right or our intestines are slightly different or whatever. I was ignoring the real clues of human history. And, um, and so one night about, I don't know, two weeks before running the London Marathon, and I was training heavy. I was running... 15 to 18 miles, three days a week. You know, I was really, I was prepping for the marathon. And I woke up one night having an incredibly powerful dream about eating meat. And I hadn't had meat in over five years. And what that said to me is that's not an addiction. That's not an emotional connection. That is my physical body calling for something. Because guess what? I'm pushing my body to the very edge by training for a marathon. And it's asking for some stuff. And you know what? I switched to pescatarian at that point, like you did, changed my entire experience of life. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating stuff. This is like uh, intuitive eating, right? Would you say that that's what you would call it, intuitive eating? Conscious. Conscious is Conscious better than intuitive. And I'll tell you why. We, intuitive means like, oh, I just listen to myself. And you can't. There's something called the evolution <laughs> gap. And the evolution gap is basically, kind of works like this. Human evolution used to be kind of directly related to our social construct. So, you know, our evolution uh, was kind of happening in lockstep with our lifestyle. But about 15,000 years ago, we figured out agriculture. And so we started changing our lifestyle much more rapidly than we could evolve to be different. So the, the reality is you and I have the DNA of a hunter-gatherer. We do. So does everybody on earth ultimately have that DNA. And, and one of the troubles is, is that starting 15,000 years ago, our civilization started taking a bit of a turn away from our evolution. And our evolution could never keep up with that because evolution moved way too slowly for that. And, and that gap, we call the evolution gap. And that gap is one of the reasons we can't just be intuitive about our eating. Because here's an example. If you and I are walking along in Africa say where this rhino is 100,000 years ago, right? You know, we're walking along and, and it's 100,000 and we see a tree or a bush and it's full of fruit. We're not going to look at each other and go, 
Oh, Joel, I'm on keto at the moment. You know, like we're going to walk up to that bush <laughs> and we're going to eat, we're going to go and eat the berries. And you know what's going to happen is after we eat the berries, we're going to have a blood sugar spike, which is going to cause an insulin rush, which is going to break down the blood sugar, which is going to leave us with insulin shock, which is going to make us hungry and make us eat more berries. And so we're going to eat more berries to the point that we even like maybe our bellies get overly full. This may seem like a bad design, except that if the berries are on the trees, what that tells us is that it's late summer, or early fall, and the next season coming around the corner is winter, which means a long, dry drought. And so we better eat everything we can right now. And so we have a natural instinct that when we eat sugar, it makes us crave sugar. Well, if you're an intuitive eater, that means that what you're going to do is eat sugar and you're going to intuit that you need sugar. Well, we have to be as conscious eaters, a combination between really spiritual um, intuition combined with really grounded consciousness about why we're eating, what we're eating, when we're eating it. Yeah, that's such a great uh, differentiator there when you break that down. I love that. So we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the Addicted to Success podcast. And for an entrepreneur, energy is a really important commodity. What can we start introducing into our diet and even taking out, apart from the obvious things that we've broken down, uh, in order to increase our energy levels as entrepreneurs? All right. So here, here's, um, here's how this goes. Is I... Uh I spent many years teaching business and entrepreneurship around the world. I'm, I'm, I'm fundamentally an entrepreneur. My first business was mobile computing, wireless networking, barcode scanning, you know, logistics management and so on. And my next business after that was, uh, um, I bought a, uh, um, Hollywood special effects studio in Northern California where we worked on movies like avatar pirates of the Caribbean, Iron Man, transformers, that kind of stuff. And while I was running that company, we started another company that made 3D cameras and we started another company that did high fidelity uh, medical simulation for the US Army. I'm, I'm saying all this to say that I'm at heart an entrepreneur and I've had a diverse entrepreneurial background. And a lot of times people would come to me and go, wow, you must be really good at business or you must be really good at marketing. And I'd say, well, you know, mostly I just have a lot of energy. You know, that, that's really mostly it is I got a lot of energy. And, 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 and so then what started happening when I started teaching business around the world and that I, I first started teaching business because I got invited by Tony Robbins team to come and teach business at his seminars. And I fell in love with doing that. It was so much fun touring around the world with Tony that I then decided to start teaching our own workshops and our own seminars around the world. And what was happening is our clients kept coming to me and going, Eric, how can you do that? How can you get on a plane, fly here, have no jet lag? get on stage, speak for 10, 12 hours a day. If you were at my speaking workshop, that was probably what, five, six hours. That's a ton of energy yeah. I'm putting out. Yeah. That doesn't show. And, and so people would come to me and go, where does all that energy come from? And I go, well, do you really want to know? And then now I get to the point of having to answer your question. And the trouble is answering your question isn't so straightforward because everybody wants there to be this silver bullet. They want me to tell them that if they, if they use athletic greens, they're going to feel better immediately. And while I think athletic greens can be really good for them, I don't have a single fix. What I have is an understanding that by introducing real consciousness into our relationship with food, we can do some important things. Like here's, a, here's an important thing. Your health is far more determined by you getting enough of the good stuff than it is by you eliminating the bad stuff. Now, that's a really important thing. It's, it's, it's a principle of wild fit. It's a truth. And the fact is, is that most diets are all like, eliminate this. Don't do that. Don't eat this. Cut that down. Count your calories. No, no. The very first thing that somebody should do to transform their health is make sure that their 
nutritional needs are being met in the most functional way possible. And the funny thing is, if you do that, your body's incredibly forgiving about overeating on the other junky stuff, right? So that's the first thing is to get enough of what you really need. So what do we really need? Well, I mean, that's really straightforward. We, we need a variety of seasonal plants, uh, you know, fruits and vegetables. We need them seasonally rotated because we don't want to be eating fruit with any kind of regularity because we're never meant to. We don't want our pancreas producing insulin every day all the time. So we need a seasonal rotation of about 200 different plant species a year. We need really good high quality proteins. We need, we need, we need a variety of fats. We need all of the amino acids. We need all those things. And they, you know, so, so we know that, you know, our hunter-gatherer background would tell us, well, root vegetables, vegetables, greens, fruits, veg fruits um, seasonal fruits, and, and high-quality, free-ranged, you know, best quality we can, uh, animal products, meat, egg, uh, eggs, fish, that sort of stuff. Those things are core to our needs as a human being. And anything else that has ingredients you have to read or it comes in a package or is processed in any other way, it's not even really food. You can have it. Yeah. But don't think of it as food. Think of it as an emotional experience. Yeah. You got me thinking. I, I think that what I've been doing lately is just sticking to a lot of the same yeah. type of meals. I mean, you know, we've got, I'm in Bali right now. I got Gojek. I can order from any cafe or restaurant around here. It's like a dollar for them to go and pick it up and bring it to me. And then obviously I pay them the cash for, for picking up the food. But, you know, we've got an app here of all these options and I keep sticking to the same meals. So I like this because now I'm going to start challenging myself and going, okay, cool. Maybe adding some more, you know, yeah. plant-based right. meals today. And then tomorrow, you know, switch it up with something else that I wouldn't usually pick and, and you know, test By the it way, out the it's so healthy for your gut biome. If you eat only one thing, you breed an incredibly bio-narrow gut biome. When you eat a variety of different plants, your gut biome gets healthier, the population becomes more, more diverse, and you become more robust in your ability to process foods. Wow. Game changer right there. I love that. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to start doing that. Amazing, Eric. Amazing. So how do we find you online and where are your programs? Well, you know, uh, online I'm eric.ee or ericedmeads.com. Uh, social media wise, I handle my own Instagram. So if anybody has questions or comments, write to me. I, I deal with that myself. I, I, I don't let my team, my team can do Facebook and that's fine, but Instagram's all me. Um, and those are probably the best ways to reach me. Uh, programs, uh, they can find at ericedmeads.com or by following me on Instagram and I can connect them with our team. Uh, the big stuff that's happening over the next year is, um, you know, we have WildFit is just growing absolutely unbelievably quickly. And so that's a big, big deal at the moment. Anybody who wants to really, you know, consider their relationship with food and not ever go on a diet again, then definitely go to getwildfit.com and, and start a new conversation with food. Yeah, good stuff. Guys, make sure you jump onto it. Uh, I know so many people that have gone through this program that have had amazing results. Uh, and, you know, it's about results. If you've got testimonials, case studies happening over and over again, Eric is doing something right. There are a lot of programs out there, a lot of people preaching things and not living by it. Eric, I know for sure I've seen him live in the flesh. He is a man of his word and he is also a man who lives by the things that he loves and teaches. So make sure you follow Eric. Uh, Eric, if we could take away two to three tangible things to start actioning today, what would they be? All right. So we've, 
in our quantum shift program, one of the things, one of the exercises we go through is we recognize this reality. And that is that your biochemistry in any given moment, and think about how long the present is. I mean, it's not, it's not even a thing. The present doesn't even really exist. The future becomes the past in a, in a heartbeat, right? And there's this tiny little sliver in the middle that we call the present. And your biochemistry affects the way you perceive that present, which means it affects the way you make decisions. And so if you're in a scarcity mentality or you are fear-based with lots of adrenaline in your system, then the world is going to look scary to you and the world is going to look fundamentally pessimistic to you. So what we do is we go through a process where we've taken a look at the 14 core needs of a human being and figure out that when we satisfy those needs really effectively, we build the best case for solid biochemistry that allows us to see the world the most optimistic way possible, fundamentally being happier. So, just for the sake of brevity, let's just go through the physical things. In the order of survival, in other words, in the order of importance that you need these things, number one is air. You've got to have good quality air. You've got to have it. And, and most people don't. They breathe shallow. They sit down all day. I'm standing up right now. The whole, you know, they sit down all day. Their lungs are crunched over. They're not getting enough air. They're not getting enough air to their brain. And so, as a consequence, they're negatively affecting their biochemistry and making the world a harder place. Number two is water. Where, where air you can only live without for a few minutes, you can live a couple days without water. But the truth is you shouldn't. You should be well hydrated all the time with the best quality water that you can get. In my opinion, the best quality water is glacial runoff or mineral water rather than say like reverse osmosis, purified, whatever. I'm as natural as the water can be, the better. Uh, number three is um, making sure that you're getting enough sleep. Uh, it, funny enough, you think it might have something to do with food. Nope. If the CIA really, if the NSA really wants to break you, they don't need to waterboard you. All they got to do is take away your REM sleep for three days. Then you'll tell them everything. Your brain goes into meltdown mode if you don't sleep correctly. And so air, water, sleep, then good food energy, good food nutrition, movement, and sunshine. That's my takeaway for you. If you work on that checklist, if all you did for the next week is make sure that you are a 10 out of 10 on each of those areas, I think you can change your whole life. I love that. I'm like two to three things. You break it all down and give us even more. Thank you so much. <laughs> wow. Good stuff. Good stuff. So Eric, thanks a million for being a part of this podcast and sharing your wisdom with my audience. Uh, if you're listening right now, make sure that you are implementing the things that Eric has taught you. And also, if you haven't been noting these things down, go back and listen to the episode again. And if you feel like there's anyone that needs to hear this, I believe everyone needs to hear this. But if you have somebody at top of the mind, make sure you share this episode with them so they can get the good wisdom from Eric from this episode. Uh, now, Eric, I always end every interview with this last question. And the last question is, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech, to the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? Have fun. When things get difficult, treat it like a video game. In a video game, when you get to the hard stuff, you don't go, oh man, it's the hard stuff. You go, awesome. This is an opportunity to power up. Live life like that. <laughs>